Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Nick Runlet. I'm one of the pastors here at CCF. Have the privilege of opening God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 11. So if you're not there, I would invite you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. Uh, One of the realities of Christianity is that it's about far more than what can be seen with our eyes. Throughout Luke's gospel, we get a glimpse of that as Jesus speaks to his followers, as he speaks to, in our account this morning, the Pharisees and the lawyers. But throughout the account, we see Jesus address things like the importance of fruit, which can be seen. But that good fruit comes out of a changed heart, things that cannot be seen. We see the crowds growing, followers of Jesus, the numbers increasing as they gather around him, things that can be seen. Yet many who outwardly looked like they believed did not worship Jesus as the Son of God, things that many of the people didn't see. Many people really liked Jesus, as we read in our last passage in Luke. They at least liked his miracles and his signs, things that you can see. But many also did not believe that he was the greater Solomon, greater than Jonah. And so the warning that you and I receive from watching the people of Israel interact with Jesus, as we will see this morning, we just saw in the reading of our text, is that we should not be most concerned with what others see from us, but what God is doing in us. Not most concerned about what others see in our life, but what God is actually doing in us. I think we all know that we could read our Bibles every day for three years. We could read through the entire Bible year after year after year. We could be the most faithful attender in CCF's history, the most generous giver that a local church or a local ministry has ever known. We could even be the greatest expert in this book yet our life could still be much more about our own kingdom, a love for ourselves as opposed to God's. And I think that should cause us to have an appropriate fear as we gather this morning. I thought about this several times throughout the week as we gathered, had the privilege of gathering with thousands of other pastors and ministry leaders for a three-day conference. Men lifting hands, singing rich theological truth, as we sang this morning, sitting under biblical teaching and preaching. Yet no doubt there were men in that room that if their secret sins were exposed, if their hearts were revealed, they would be disqualified immediately from the position they hold. Outwardly, they've played the part of godly, happy pastor for years as their heart has just slowly grown cold and shriveled. Even in this place, each week we gather, hundreds gather in this place to do the exact same things. We sing the praises of God. We pray the praises of God and the truth of God. We listen to the word of God together. And what can be seen looks fantastic most days in this place. But for some, God is not their king. Their heart longs for another And that can be so easily hidden in secret. Now, I didn't think about these things at the conference to to walk around in despair. Every guy I shook his hand, is this guy living in sin? No, no, that's not the point of reflecting on these things together. I think really what that's meant to do, and as I thought about those things, 
is to reflect on my own, to warn and reflect upon my own heart, to recognize how easy it is to become cold to the things of God while outwardly still looking like things are good, still looking as if I'm playing the part well. And the outward display of the Pharisees and lawyers was not the result of genuine devotion to God. They didn't truly love God. They did these things despite their hearts being far from God. That's why I think it should cause us as we begin to to have an appropriate fear about how easily it is for us to do the same. Jesus warns here. He exposes And so we're not going to shy away from warning and exposing some of those things, I pray, even in our own hearts this morning. So I hope as we walk through this text that God will use this text to make you slow down this morning, to examine your own heart, to think about ways in which you present godliness while your heart is in disarray. That you would... Examine whose kingdom you're truly living for, and not just externally, but internally. Not just in public, but in private. So let me pray as we begin. Father, we approach a task that we know is fruitless without you being at work. And so I ask that you would work through the preaching of your word, that you would work in our hearts to expose sin, to reveal things in our lives that need to be transformed, need to be brought under your authority as we fear you and live for you. So I pray that you would save today. I pray that you would encourage and also convict to make us walk away from this place showing you off in a better picture, in a better light than even when we came in. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to start by reminding you a little bit of what we looked at in our last time together on a Sunday morning before Easter Sunday when we were in Luke chapter 11. Back in verses 24 and 26, if you're there, you can probably just turn one page or maybe on the same page, but Jesus gives a warning there of an unclean spirit cast out, returning to to find the house in order, well kept, cleaned out, yet bringing with him even more powerful and evil spirits than before. And I think our section, sorry about that, is not disconnected from what Jesus has been teaching prior to this. Everything that he's been saying is leading to what he now says to the Pharisees and lawyers here. They've attempted to clean the house of Israel out, put things in order by focusing on what you can see, by focusing on what they can do in their own strength, and it's actually made things worse. It hasn't helped They failed to see the Son of Man for who he truly is. And they not only lead themselves, but they lead others towards destruction. So let's walk through these several different interactions that we find in our text. And really that's all we're going to do is just kind of walk through the text and and try to highlight some of the things that we see from these interactions. First part of our section this morning looks at the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee. In verses 37 to 44. So verse 37 sets the scene for us as Jesus is speaking. So again, it's a continuation of our last passage. A Pharisee asks him to dine with him, and Jesus accepts this invitation. Many of you probably know what a Pharisee is. 
But I can remember the first time I heard the word Pharisee, at least remember hearing the word Pharisee. I was 10, 11 years old, and I'll tell you why I can remember that. It's because I heard it in the church parking lot that I grew up as one member called another member a Pharisee (laughs) after service one Sunday morning. And uh, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, so this is just how things went down in the church parking lot, you know, in Flint. And again, I, I didn't know what it meant. And I'm not encouraging you to approach your brother that way as you leave here, or sister that way, but I could tell by the tone of his voice this was not a compliment. He was not building up his brother in that moment. It was really another way of calling him a hypocrite. And he was calling him a Pharisee to get across the point that you are a hypocrite. And this is my first interaction with this word, and the, the Pharisees learned later on as I asked some questions are one that have that type of reputation, a reputation of hypocrisy. In fact, next week in chapter 12, we'll see that Jesus warns, tells the people to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that even more next week, what that exactly looks like. But they were known for their hypocrisy and for spreading it throughout the people of Israel. They not only did it themselves, but they encouraged those around them to take part in this hypocrisy. But they couldn't hide behind that hypocrisy forever. And so Jesus begins to expose it here in our text. These Pharisees were a a Jewish religious sect in Israel. They interpreted the law for people. They developed a strict interpretation of the law adding their own interpretations, and also just adding new laws, adding new ceremonies. And this was meant to kind of help them maintain their purity and identity and separation. One of these additions was the elaborate law connected to eating a meal, required to eat a meal to cleanse and purify yourself before you take part in that meal. And this wasn't about hygiene as we would wash before we eat today. It it was connected to purity. You were defiled from the day, whatever you took part in, and so outwardly you had to cleanse yourself ceremonially before you could eat. You couldn't even fulfill your duties, your righteous duties, if you were not pure outwardly. And these laws that the Pharisees added on, they were binding on the consciences of the people. It wasn't like this is, this is just something I've t- tried to put in practice to help me. No, it was binding. It was as if God had spoken these laws and these words to the people. And immediately we see that the Pharisee is astonished. He's amazed that Jesus does not first wash before dinner. If we know anything about the Pharisees, this reaction is not a surprise. One author wrote, when you think you're righteous... You expect others to be righteous as well. So you become demanding, judgmental, and constantly disappointed. And we see that over and over again, specifically with the Pharisees in these gospel accounts. And so even just one quick test for yourself this morning, as you're examining your own heart. Are you often demanding or judgmental or constantly disappointed in those around you? That is an indicator of self-righteousness, of thinking that you have done quite a bit to get you where you are as a Christ follower. So ask yourself those questions. Are you 
demanding, judgmental, constantly disappointed. We see that in the Pharisees here, even as he's interacting with Jesus. Jesus, it seems, does not conform to this man-made law. Clear from what follows, that was intentional. He's going to teach a lesson to these lawyers and Pharisees. And rituals, even things like liturgy, consistent practices within the church, are an incredibly valuable and helpful thing. God uses them to help shape us over time. He develops habits within us. He helps us to grow through those things. Even as we gather on Sunday mornings, we do the same things often, week in and week out. And God uses that to shape us. But just as the signs that Jesus performed were not about the signs themselves, the practices and rituals of God's people are not about the practices and the rituals themselves. They point beyond themselves to the God that we worship. But we can so easily, so easily miss the point when our greatest concern is our kingdom and not his. And we show that to be true of us when we're focused primarily on external things while our hearts worship everything but him. So Jesus uses this opportunity not to encourage them He doesn't come alongside them and try to point out the good things they're doing. You know, well done in in adding to this. I hadn't thought about this. I'm so glad you added that to my law. No, he warns them in their deception. So we find in this section six woes, or really these are six very serious warnings for where this is headed. It's compared to giving a warning against catastrophe or danger that's coming. If, if this continues to be the path you walk with no repentance, this is where it will lead. Catastrophe is coming. Starts out in verse 39 by calling them out for being so very careful to do things right outwardly while not truly being obedient in their hearts. They're going after what's evil, even, full of ungodly desires. He calls greed and wickedness out in these Pharisees. Greed points to taking advantage of others through deceit, through robbery, taking from them who are weak. And wickedness reinforces the fact that they pay careful attention to appearance while they neglect inner integrity. You fools, Jesus says. God made not just the outside, but the inside as well. But the outside is what we can see. It's what we can impress people with. It's what we can measure a man by. It's how we can compare ourselves to other people. So we spend significant time in our lives very carefully crafting what people see what they're allowed to see, what we want them to see, what we're willing to to tear back the veil on and and expose. And certainly living lives primarily through phones and computers has not helped this one bit. In this way of living, we forget that God didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. The healthy have no need of a physician. So why do we try to act outwardly outwardly Like we still don't need the physician, even after we have believed the gospel. A quote I heard just this week, I think fits so well here, from B.B. Warfield. He wrote, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development, B. 
because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. If we recognize this to be true, then we should be far more concerned about our hearts than what people can see. And don't hear me saying that these are disconnected. They're absolutely connected. We see that even in Jesus' words earlier. But God declares us clean not because of what we do outwardly, but because of what Jesus has done in us and for us. But instead, the Pharisees claim to succeed in what they need to accomplish, and they, they then reject God's grace. They don't see their need for a physician, so they reject the grace that's been offered, that's standing right in front of them, dining at their table, and they miss it. But this success that they think they have is really an illusion. It's like they've written out the test and given themselves all A's. And Jesus does not let them live in that illusion anymore unchallenged. So in verse 42, he begins this series of woes. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So these Pharisees did not keep the main thing the main thing. They were experts in the minor while they were failing at the major. And I pray that will, will not be said of us as followers of Jesus. Neglecting true justice and love of God. The one they're supposedly doing it all for while tithing in the exact, precise way that was required. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. And you'll notice he doesn't tell them here that the outside of the dish being clean is a bad thing, or that tithing <laughs> is something you shouldn't do because it distracts you from loving God. No, they should not and could not neglect the weightier matters. That's his focus here. Unfortunately, I know in my own life, I often try so hard to avoid being a legalist that I end up neglecting both the weightier matters and the less weightier matters. Trying so hard to avoid this pendulum swing. The Pharisees really are focusing on what is far more easily accomplished than true love for God and for neighbor. Attending a service, clicking a give tab on a website, putting on a collared shirt once a week, signing up for a small group. For many of us, that's far more easily accomplished than caring for the orphan and the widow. Far more easily accomplished than fighting sin day after day after day after day. Than worship in our hearts and in our homes on a busy week. 
than fighting for those who cannot fight for themselves by speaking the gospel to our neighbors. And this is not a social justice gospel. This is not a legalistic gospel. This is a gospel that transforms the way we love people made in his image. This is a gospel that motivates us to fight sin. In verse 43, the Pharisees are warned because they're more concerned with being honored than giving honor. So he moves to another woe and says, you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. I think it's fair we have no Pharisees here because the front row is always the last row taken at CCF. <laughs> but, but it wasn't about the best view of the pulpit. It wasn't about getting closest. It was about being elevated, sitting in a seat of status where people knew you were godly, where people knew you were a holy one. Seeking those places to be praised by men. They were less concerned with God's rule and more concerned with their legacy, with being elevated and lifted high. And they loved being greeted with respect in the marketplace, places of business where they were seen in public to be honored and praised and approached and revered. It's nice to to be loved and cared for and welcomed. But if we are more captivated and even concerned about being known as someone who's godly, instead of actually being godly, we're missing the point of all of this. Everything we do together, everything he's called us to, the desire for human praise and recognition exposes in the Pharisees where their devotion really lies. That the show they put on is really just that. It's a show for their own praise. So what are some ways in your own life that you long for people to praise you for your godliness or your humility or your giving or your godly acts instead of focusing on growing in godliness so he is made much of, so he is the one that is exalted. The Pharisees, what they did, even as they entered the synagogue, was not about lifting God high, it was about lifting themselves high, about being seen and recognized for what they do. I mean, so many embarrassing examples I could give from my life here. I think one just contemporary example that I think of, and maybe many have faced this, and I'm certainly not calling this a sin if you have done this, but I know I have had many an internal struggle when I'm giving online and there's the option of putting in your name or putting anonymous, right? And in my own heart, in that moment, even just a little small way that I'm at war, why do I want to be seen for what I give? Why do I want to be known for what I'm giving and my generosity in that moment? And again, that's one tiny, small, little example in my heart where I see that exposed, where I want to be known more for my generosity than for that generosity leading people to see and exalt Jesus. Subtle things like that expose us. That sometimes we love being known for godliness more than we love pointing people to Jesus through our godliness. 
May God expose that in us. May he change us in those ways. The next woe we find in verse 44, and reads, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk all over them without knowing it. A little background on this as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees in Old Testament law. To step on someone's grave made a person ceremonially unclean, and they had to go through a seven-day process of purification because of that. So there were precautions made to whitewash the tomb so you knew where they were and you didn't walk over them. Jesus tells the Pharisees they're like an unmarked grave. For the people they lead walk over them and don't even know that they're walking in death. They're walking among death under their feet. So these Pharisees have set a trap for the people and the people unknowingly walk right into it. There are so many warnings for us in this, but I think the incredible privileges we have as the church of discipling one another, teaching one another, leading and preaching, counseling, caring for one another. What an incredible responsibility we have as the church. And it should not stop us from being the church to one another, but it should cause us to to weigh carefully how we live and how we counsel and how we teach and how we disciple and what we speak to people, what type of advice we give, which is counsel. Because we can either point one another to life or we can lead people away from it by what we say, by what we do. So a severe warning to the Pharisees, and I think, us today as well. The second part of our section looks at the interaction between Jesus and the lawyer, and I think this is funny. It's not meant to be funny, but every time I read this, uh, I'm just reminded of the fact that sometimes it's just better to be quiet in certain situations. So I want to read verses 45 and 46 again. It says, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So the the lawyer speaks up, he's listening in, he speaks up, and hey, you insult us by this, and and it's almost like he's asking, yeah, while you're here, let me actually (laughs) dig in a little bit, right? And the lawyer, in this context is an expert in theological law. They help to interpret the law for leaders, for the people of Israel, a scholar in the law of God. And he feels as if what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees also attacks them, and it does. And he's right. There's no apology from Jesus here. He just continues to warn. These lawyers were not at all concerned. We... we, See from the text and the way Jesus warns them, they don't care about helping the people of God. They're also creating new laws and passing them off as something God is requiring of the people. And they don't even touch the burdens they create with one of their fingers. What a condemnation upon them, these leaders, these interpreters of the law of God. They don't even help people meet the standards that they invent. They don't even walk alongside the people. 
And I think this woe reveals some helpful insight into what leaders and teachers are called to. Not just instruction, but also called to help. For those you lead and teach, you must also show them what to do. Help them in doing it. Model it alongside them. Help bear the burden. Goes for elders, teachers, small group leaders, disciples, parents, mentors. We must be careful not to load man-made burdens on those in our care. And we must help them to be about the work of God together. We can easily become weighed down with man-made burdens that have nothing to do with the word of God. R.C. Sproul wrote, The true law of God drives us to Jesus, but the laws of men crush the spirit and slow the kingdom of God. I pray that for us as a church, as I've thought through this text and for my preaching this morning, for every time someone preaches from this pulpit and every Sunday school classroom, every discipling relationship, one-on-one conversation among members, that we warn and teach and encourage and proclaim the word of God and don't burden consciences with our opinion or man-made burdens. And that if there is burden, if there is guilt, even this morning as we sit under the word of God, if we feel guilt or we're burdened by some things that God brings to the light, that it would be because the spirit through the word is at work to expose sin, to cause us to repent and to, to point us to Jesus, the only hope in that burden and guilt. We ought to live as if what God has given us is actually enough. We don't have to add our own opinions to it. We don't have to tweak it in order for it to fit. But we are to direct people to the only hope when it reveals that we fall so far short. We get a a little bit longer section here from verses 47 to 51. And I do want to read it again, just because it's been a little while, and I want to focus in on this for a second. But look at verse 47. It says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, they are hypocrites even in their memorial projects, even in their tombs that they build for the prophets that their fathers killed. Why? Because the, the irony of this entire situation is that the same attitude that was exposed in their fathers as they persecuted and killed the prophets of God is the same thing going on in that very moment. The greatest prophet that ever lived, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament is standing among them and they are prepared to kill him, to not receive his message. The ultimate example of hypocrisy 
is seen in this moment. To condemn unbelief while they live in unbelief. One commentator summarized it this way. I think it's just helpful summary. The blood of all the prophets and of all the martyrs from Abel down to the present day in which Jesus was speaking was shed as testimony to the truth which is now embodied in the person of Jesus. In a sense, what Jesus is saying that if you take all the murders of the prophets throughout the whole history, from Abel to Zechariah, add them together, that doesn't add up to the heinousness of the crime they are about to commit in murdering him. They had the Son of God standing before them, and they despised him. They reject Jesus, and in rejecting him, they do the same thing as their fathers. Woe to you. The final woe we have here in Luke's gospel comes in in verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So again, this is speaking specifically to those lawyers who interpret the law. This key likely referring to the interpretation of Scripture. They interpret the Scriptures for the people, and they do it in a way that is in contradiction to the way God meant it to be interpreted. In their hands, the law that was intended to lead one to God, to point out their need and lead them to the hope that God would provide, actually becomes an obstacle for these people. Called to present God's truth, but they present their own version of the truth. Called to present the thoughts of God, the words of God, but they present their own thoughts and words as if it was the word of God. Not only are they entering into this truth themselves, or this lack of truth, really, they're keeping others from entering in, from understanding what the law pointed to, what the word pointed to, what it was meant to do, and how it was fulfilled in the one standing before them. That the one warning them, the one dining at their table, is actually the only one who is truly pure in heart. The only one who is justice and love, perfectly. Who didn't come to be honored in the best seat, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who is the truth and the life and the way, no deceit was found on his lips, No perversion of the truth of God ever was uttered by Jesus. He didn't lead people astray. He led people towards life in himself. The one who didn't just help with the burden, he took the burden on himself. He didn't heap up heavy burdens that people couldn't bear, but he actually endured it upon himself. The one that fulfills all that they have been waiting for as a people and all they've tried to accomplish on their own and in their own strength and in their own rituals. This is the incredible thing about this account, that Jesus, who warns them, is the Jesus that will make a way for them to truly be righteous. Jesus that sits before them and warns them is the one who will provide a way for all their labor and strife that they've been trying to accomplish on their own. Amazing. I want to briefly look at the final part of our section this morning. 
just the relationship between Jesus and his enemies. And we just get a little bit at the end that really this section just kind of launches us into what is coming. Right? We get a glimpse into where this all is leading, what they want to do to Jesus. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. This does not sit well with the Pharisees and lawyers. I get that. As you read this account, you understand that. But their response is not repentance. It is actually to dig their heels in and find a way to get rid of this man who's speaking this to them. So eventually their heart right here is beginning to be exposed in its deeds. The CSB reads that they begin to oppose him fiercely. So what is in their hearts is beginning to come out. They can't hide it anymore. They're going to get this guy to talk as much as they can and kind of corner him and get him to say something that then will allow them to take him to the cross. Jesus challenges nearly everything that they have built their religious lives around. And so they begin to hate him and devise a plan to take him out. And that will take place until he finally bears a cross. And there really is no resolution at the end of chapter 11. Again, we just get a glimpse of the path that begins to take shape, that Jesus has been walking all along, and we just get another chapter in that towards Calvary. But I close with just some, some thoughts for us as we reflect on the warnings and the woes of this passage because it does warn us, as we've talked about all along the way, but I think it also reminds us of some things. It reminds us of where this all is headed and why it has to end in a cross. Because without Christ, this is as good as it gets. The Pharisee is the best that man can be without God. The best that anyone in this room can be without Jesus. And we see Jesus expose that verse by verse. That it has never worked and it never will work. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What the Pharisees and scribes have done is not enough. It has to exceed that. And it's only exceeded in the one who warns. In Jesus, our Redeemer King. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Cry out to him today. If you don't know him and if you do know him, as your heart's exposed, cry out to the righteous one. That he will keep you from idolatry. That he will give you a heart of affection for him. That what you sing and what you listen to will not just be empty phrases heaped up but that it will flow out of a heart that loves your King and your Redeemer. So examine today. Involve others in this process. Get other people involved. Heed this warning and live. And I, I want to read a few of the lyrics of one of the songs we sang. I ran and printed this off real quick because it just fits so well as we were singing. And then I'll pray. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like. 
can earn myself a place with you. O God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I love that connection to this text. I cannot cause my soul to live, but Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Let's pray.